Transforming Society podcast is brought to you by Bristol University Press and Policy Press. In episodes covering a wide range of social issues, we speak to authors and editors about their books and journals to get to grips with the story their research tells and look at the specific ways in which it could transform society for the better. Through COVID-19, Brexit and rising levels of race hate crime, Britain is becoming increasingly divided. In the aftermath of the pandemic, and with questions over the breakup of the United Kingdom refusing to dissipate, how do people across Britain choose to navigate the tensions in this divided land? A new photography book, This Separated Isle, edited by Paul Sung, examines this very question through portraits of people from across the UK and their accompanying narrative stories. These examine the relationship between identity and nationhood, revealing not only what divides us, but also the ties that bind us together. Joining us today are Paul Sung, the editor, Christy DeGarry, whose portrait and story appear in the book, and photographer Amara Eno. Thank you for joining me, everyone. Hiya. Hi. So, Paul, we'll start with you. Um, can you tell us a bit about your story and how you've come to do the work you do? Yeah, um, I mean, I you know, fell into filmmaking quite late on in life. When I was younger, um, I kind of had dreams of being creative and um, making films or doing, you know, um, being a writer, but it seemed um, like an impossible dream from, um, you know, the money to go to film school or, or anything like that. And so I, you know, worked in a series of jobs, um, you know, in, in shops and bars and then in offices and never sort of really, you know, did anything creative. And then in 2014, I met a band uh, called Sleaford Mods and they were going to be going on this tour of the UK to sort of hidden places and um, areas that maybe people you know tend to forget about and neglect um, and in my head you know their, their music um, addresses a lot of those kind of ideas about underrepresentation and about being disenfranchised uh, and in my head I thought well that would make a good documentary you know following this band going to these places where they're going to connect with their audience uh, and then and the the phrase Invisible Britain just sort of popped into my head and I didn't sort of really think too much about it because I, mean, I wasn't making films at the time, but the idea wouldn't go away. And so we made this film, which was called Sleaford Mods Invisible Britain, and it follows them, you know, on this tour in the run up to the 2015 general election. Um, and I, it was, I mean, you know, that's like six years ago. And I think so much has obviously happened since then. Um, not least of which is Brexit and COVID-19. But I think the conditions of the way that the country was in terms of how divided things were, um, were, were obvious even then. And I think in making that film, um, it, it, it made me think a lot about the UK and, and, and about how divided it is, not, in, not only in terms of, um, you know, things along sort of levels of um, class and race, but in terms of attitudes to things. And I think, you know, COVID-19 has really shown that, that, that this is a very divisive country. And I think it's probably always been that way. My work, I suppose, has, has been about um, people who kind of challenge the status quo, whether that was, you know, Sleaford Mods, whether that was housing campaigners in dispossession or people like Polystyrene in, in my last documentary. I'm interested in stories um, about outsiders, about people who don't fit in and don't really try to fit in, you know, they, you know, in, in some ways take um, solace or they, you know, celebrate the fact that they're different. And I think it's always been 
an interesting area because I mean, I've, I've often probably always been an outsider from being a child growing up in South East London, being biracial, um, being working class, but never fitting into either world. Bringing us up to date, this book, um, The Separated Old, was sort of planned to be, or planned to explore, um, you know, the differences in people, but how, you know, all of those differences can work if people, you know, are respectful, if people accept them, rather than just thinking that person is different, I disagree with them. Sometimes you just have to accept and respect. So the book is, is I suppose, designed to take lots of different stories, you know, from people from different walks of life, from different faiths, from different races, and, and for them to just really tell their stories, you know, for them to say, you know, this is my story, this is my truth, this is what I do, this is how I interpret difference. This is my view on identity. This is how I do or don't belong. So you really do get those multiple lenses, don't you? So back in 2019, um, Policy Press published Invisible Britain, the book, um, which is a similar format to this, again, portraits and stories. What's the difference between Invisible Britain and the Separated Isle? How does the Separated Isle take things forward? I think that one of the major differences is life, the events of the past um, three years since um, Portraits of Hope and Resilience happened. Um, you know, there's probably a bit less hope, maybe a bit more resilience, I don't know. But, you know, the, the, it seems that events have been unfolding at, at, at such a sort of, you know, breakneck speed. You know, you, you go from Brexit to COVID and then, you know, in amongst all that, you have Black Lives Matter. You have you know the whole scandal around Windrush. You have what's just happened in Afghanistan, and um, I think you know it, it's it's a really cataclysmic time that we're that we're living through. You know, the turbulent period that we're living through to make work during that is um, you almost can't keep up. Um, and so I think as a development, it's this this book is rather than looking at you know the issues so much, it's looking at personal stories. You know. Um, the first book was very personal because people are talking about how issues affect them, whether it's austerity, deindustrialization, cuts to public services. But this book, I think, is very much about um, stories that have, have been brewing in people, in some cases, you know, over like 50, 60, 70 or more years, you know, from people that have either come to this country from, from different places or have been here, you know, the children of immigrants. But, you know, I mean, I, I was born here, but, you know, my dad was an immigrant and, you know, often if you're, if you're the child of an immigrant, you know, you have your experience of life of, of, of being different or being of other, but sometimes you inherit potential traumas that they had as well. And I think this book is, in some ways, it seems a bit more long in the tooth than the old one, because I think the old, the first book was sort of reacting to, to issues and events that were, you know, current or recent, whereas this one is looking at, things like empire is looking at you know issues that are hundreds of years old and you know there are scars on a lot of these stories that go well beyond things that happen to those individuals and actually reach back into you know what's what's been done in the name of you know the british empire over you know many many generations so it is different and it's um it felt more personal for me because in the first book the intro that i wrote was about the work it was about the book and it was about um the people whereas with this one, I wrote something very personal about my experience of growing up, um, of being, um, of struggling with my identity for many, many years. And, you know, being, it starts off, it's written, you know, in the first person, present tense. And I talk about when I was, you know, five years old, 
And the first time I remember experiencing racism, which was at my childminder's house. And um, I was sat there and there was this kid called Marcus and he had um, a, a ZX Spectrum computer, which were these computers that had these rubber keys on, very distinct thing I remember about it. And I remember he typed in the word uh, chink um, and then he pressed the button and then the screen just filled with this word you know, dozens of times. And I can't remember if I'd heard that word before or not. I must have, I must have known what it meant. But, um, you know, I ran out of that room in tears and, and, and I had this, I suppose it was a shame. And growing up, you know, because I didn't live with my dad and didn't know any other sort of Chinese kids or East or Southeast Asian kids and grew up in a white working class environment from a council estate, you know, I didn't want to be, you know, mixed race or biracial. I, I wanted to be white. And of course, I wasn't white. and I wasn't accepted for being white, you know, the kids I knew and then the, the kids at school that were non-white, I wasn't accepted by them either. So for me, this book was much more personal than the first one. And reading a lot of the stories, I could relate to a lot of them because they're things that I've gone through or have experienced, not only, you know, in the past, but, but recently as well. Yeah, it's, I've read the introduction and it is really personal. So your story is one of the stories in the book, isn't it? Um, in his quote about the book, Benjamin Zephaniah says, we come from all over the place, we move all over the place, and our ideas are all over the place, which is what you've just been talking about. Um, it would be really interesting if you could give us an insight into like, some of the different people in the book, um, and maybe say a little, about, little bit about why you chose to include the people that you did. One thing that I, I was trying to be conscious of is to make sure that, you know, the, the book is representative of um of underrepresented backgrounds you know i mean and it sounds very sort of droll but you know i always have like a spreadsheet and i'm aware of you know that you know i know that i wanted to have at least a third of the photographers were people of color i knew that i wanted at least a third of the people in the book for people of color um and that's just something natural that i do with all my work you know because it's, it's something that i'm very um keen to make sure people are represented and in terms of the stories, really, I knew we wanted to cover certain themes and obviously, you know, I knew that we wanted to look at present issues like Brexit, like COVID-19, um, but I didn't want to get bogged down in them. One of the stories that we um, look at around COVID is to do with um, racism around it against East and Southeast Asians. So there's a woman called Tenzin who is um, Tibetan. And so she talked about her experience of not only being othered because of COVID-19 and because people will look at Tenzin and see someone that is in inverted commas Chinese. But, you know, when you're, um, uh, you know, from, from Tibet or Tibetan, you know, to be considered Chinese is, is a very, you know, strange and difficult and problematic thing. Um, and there's also, you know, ideas about, um, you know, the, the effect that the, 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 the COVID-19 has on people who, I suppose, you know, are generally, I mean, I think during that period, obviously, you know, what happened around Black Lives Matter, it's difficult to remember the, the sequence of events, but Black Lives Matter has been going for a lot longer than COVID, but it seemed to reach, you know, a bit of a critical mass during the last sort of 18 months. And seeing people's reaction to that and seeing people that, you know, um, come up with really daft slogans like All Lives Matter and their reaction to it, you know, I wanted to have, I didn't just want to have one Black Lives Matter story in the book. I knew it was important to tell, you know, different stories. Than that. And so in, in, the, in the book, there is a, a story from somebody, from a black man who is talking about his um, 
wariness around Black Lives Matter. You know, he's not saying that it's, you know, it's a bad thing, but he's concerned as a black man that he wants to know, you know, so, some of the intentions behind it and whether sometimes the, the motives behind it, how they're interpreted by other people. And I think having his lens on that as a black man is very interesting, but then also having um, an, an elder from a community, from a black community, is an elderly black woman who's talking about black, matter, black lives matter very positively. So we've got, you know, that, that balance really to sort of show that, well, you know, it, there is obviously, um, you know, one, one side of Black Lives Matter, which is, you know, the people that, you know, are on the campaigning side, but there are also people that are skeptical of it and they're not just, you know, um, white people with white privilege. There are people with other, other lenses on it. Um, and of course, there's a lot of stories about um, immigrants in the book talking about, you know, what it's like to come to this country. And I was wary of, um, you know, the, the kind of good immigrant trope of, you know, trying to put, you know, um, my feelings on, you know, that someone comes to this country and, and trying to define what is a good immigrant. I, I'm not interested in, in, in making a statement about that at all, but rather, you know, the people that are in the book talk about how some of them say, oh, this country has given me a good start. I think it's really good. A couple of them say um, coming to this country has is, is, is not been so positive in experience because there is always that balance, you know, there is always that um, grey, it's not ever black and white. So it's, it's a very sort of mixed sort of book. There's a couple of young people that are you know, talking about um, their experience of lockdown and talking about environmental campaigning. So I thought that was important with, you know, without getting too heavily into um, things like Extinction Rebellion and that sort of stuff. So it's quite a broad mix. Yeah, it's amazing to have all those different <clears throat> views in one place, really. Of Christy, yours, hi, yours is the first story in the book. Um, please, can you tell us a bit about your background, how you came to be involved in the project and, and what it was like to tell your story and be included? Um, well, Kirsty Mackay, who took my portrait, I had followed her on Instagram for quite a long time. I love her work. Um, I um, already had a copy of her first book, which is excellent. And um, she followed me too. And so she saw me, I think, sort of going through because I'm quite vocal about it. I think it's important to discuss these things. And um, so she saw a lot of my posts about talking about my identity, my racial identity. And um, so she asked me if I'd like to be part of it. And I mean, number one, having your portrait taken by a portrait photographer that you love is obviously a really lovely experience. And, but also it was just like a really, when she told me about like the, the themes in the book, it was just, it was just very apt. And it just really fit in with what I was sort of dealing with and working through at the time. Um, so, so what is your background? So um, I am Scottish and I was born here and I grew up in outside of the most northerly town in Scotland. So really, really, really in the middle of nowhere. And um, Scotland, I think we're, I think we're about, I think we're 96% white in Scotland. And in the far north of Scotland, I think you're probably, it's even more than that. Um, so my grandfather was from Pakistan. He came to Glasgow after the partition and he met my grandmother who was Norwegian Irish. And uh, they were, uh, they really stood out at the time, I think, you know, this uh, incredibly tall, very brown man and uh, this tiny little blonde Norwegian Irish woman. And my family had it's very sadly an incredibly hard time in Glasgow um 
extreme racial violence and it oh as it does it tears families apart and sort of melds them together in in in, in sort of complicated ways and so i obviously i was born into that family and so i i grew up in the sort of like the aftermath of that and then also dealing with the racism that my mum faced um as a mixed race woman um and the exclusion that goes along with that as well sort of like and she was a single mum too um so she was sort of very excluded and um even though i have light skin i also experienced a lot of racism growing up um pretty pretty much my whole life um especially in school and university and um my sort of journey with that has been I am white passing I and people assume I'm white all the time because I have very light skin um but that is absolutely not how I have identified ever probably because of how much race has been involved in in my life um and I identify as mixed race and um it's it was been really complicated for me I think because as people people assuming that I'm white um, and I mean, I really, really, I always say this and I, I definitely should say this. There's absolutely huge, huge privilege in that. Um, and, um, you know, I get to, you know, exist incredibly peacefully because of that, basically. Um, but it caused a lot of sort of inner turmoil for me, I think. And dealing with anyone who's had any sort of trauma. I think Paul said this earlier, you know, the things that are passed on from your family, you know, it's... Uh, it can be very hard to deal with actually and um it's taken me a sort of long time to get where I am with it um so being part of the book was I think it was quite important for me actually to sort of verbalize some of the things that I was feeling at the time especially yeah I suppose having to kind of bring it all down to one page of story as well is quite a process too isn't it because oh, um, it's yeah. Va vast yeah 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 it's a, I mean it's sort it sort of gives you the the um the highlights I suppose but um yeah. like everyone's everyone's story is incredibly complex I imagine yeah yeah um so the port every story in the book is accompanied by a portrait and these are incredibly powerful I wish we could show them here um but we'll maybe add links and feature some of them on the blog but Amara, you're one of the photographers in the book, um, and your portrait of is, is your portrait is of a gentleman called Raj Badu. Um, so, could you tell us a bit about your background, and then maybe a bit about the process of the photography, how you decided to shoot Raj, and what you wanted to express? Yeah, so I, I'm a photographer, um, and I guess my my job's kind of uh, evolved since since the pandemic became a thing. Um, so now I balance my time between undertaking um, editorial assignments um, for different publications, but also uh, I work as a photo producer at the Red Cross. So I'm kind of jump between taking photos and commissioning photography now. Um, but yeah, when when um, Paul approached me for this for this book, I'd already you know been thinking. I'm always you know looking for the next you know personal project to work on, and I'd been thinking a lot about my family and specifically, you know, my mum's journey um, of coming to the UK um, and kind of her role in the NHS. Um, you know, she came here from the Caribbean. She came here from Barbados in the 1990s to study nursing and since qualifying, yeah, she's just been dedicating her life to 
kind of serving the NHS. Um, so when I think when I was thinking about, you know, how I was going to approach, I, I guess, I guess identify the story that I wanted to go, go with for this, for this book, um, my thinking was probably prompted, yeah, a lot around, about, you know, not only my mum's story, but also I think that felt more significant to me because of the fact that, you know, Brexit and the EU referendum um, and the state of the NHS was quite a big, you know, national conversation at, at the time. Um, and I remember thinking about the fact that, you know, my mum and so many other people who work for the NHS are so like, they do so much work that, you know, they, even throughout the pandemic, like they were one of the, you know, key workers didn't stop working, work never stopped. And that's just been my mum's life throughout. Um, and so, yeah, I was thinking a lot about how undervalued and how undercompensated they are by our government for all of the work they do to support everyone in this country and, mm. or, 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 you know, the whole of the UK really. And so, yeah, that kind of ignited an interest in me to want to kind of explore stories of people who, you know, like my mum had come from outside the UK, immigrated here and work in the healthcare sector um, and just kind of, you know, explore, you know, and I guess highlight how much value they add to our country culturally, but also um, economically. So, yeah, when Paul asked me to contribute this story, I knew straight away that I wanted to not photograph my mum, but photograph someone who also kind of fitted quite a similar bill to that. Um, and Raj's story is similar in that he moved to the UK in the early 90s. Um, he came from Mauritius and he pursued nursing and now he works as a nurse practitioner um, and continues to work for the NHS. Um, and he, he, I met him through my mum, actually, because she knows a lot of people who have similar roles to her. Um, but yeah, in terms of what I wanted to express um, with the photography, I would say it was probably less about me actually wanting to express something specific, um, but it was more that I was just interested in learning, you know, about Raja's perspective on, you know, themes of home and belonging and community um, and those, how those feelings kind of may have evolved for him since growing up in Mauritius on a tea field where he was, he kind of lived on this compound where his cousins and his aunts and his uncles and everyone all lived you know together um to having to you know jump thousands of miles away to the UK and establish a new life where none of his family were really here um and he would have had to do a you know a fair deal of you know assimilation to even kind of fit in here like when he came here his first language was French um his skin color he's he's you know a brown, he's brown he's got brown skin and he like he kind of stood out and so it was very obvious from the get-go from for him that he was probably going to have to work, you know, double hard to even be accepted here. Yes, yeah, so yeah. I just wanted to know about his experience, you know, of working for the NHS, um, especially at, you know, such a point in time in UK history, you know, there's a Brexit referendum and then COVID kind of came, you know, and compounded that as well. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to, yeah, talk to him about that at a time when, yeah, racism was kind of, yeah, is rife and still continues to be um, rife, I would say, and maybe even more so now than when he potentially first got here. Um, mm -hmm, yeah. And so, yeah, I guess in the vein of just being interested in what Raj had to say about belonging um, and finding his place here, um, yeah, I, yeah, I asked him to be a part of it and I kind of asked him to choose the place that he, where he wanted to be photographed and oh okay where where is he he in chose he's he's in west london and he chose a, a local park and he that park was significant because um that particular that particular area he lives in he's kind of like jumped around since coming here but that particular community uh, area of london has quite um 
a large South Asian community okay. um, and so he yeah that's just a park that he's used to going to with his family and spending days out and so he yeah it was just a green space that I think he goes to and feels you know finds solace in being there so yeah yeah it's amazing to catch these people at this moment, isn't it? When there's so many different things going on and so many things that kind of feed into their stories and I guess make them reflect on everything else. There are some really interesting threads that run through all of the stories in the book. Um, things like resilience, as Kit Deval mentions in her introduction, um, things about how we define our own identities and how we are defined by other people, um, invisibility, obviously, inclusion and exclusion. So for each of you, which of these or any other themes feel the most significant? In, in Christy's story, like, I could relate a lot to that of, you know, where you've got, where you've got a dual heritage, but it's not immediately obvious when people see it. Because, you know, the first time I went to Singapore when I was 17, they all just thought I was white. Um, you know, they, someone, one, one of my relatives thought I looked like Hugh Grant, and I was just like, what? But then to, to people in the UK, they always would just see me as, you know, I used to get called Jackie Chan. Um, I was actually called Jackie Chan a few years ago in Ireland. And you do that whole thing, and it's something I've really tried to not do, but you laugh it off. And I'm, I'm tired of doing that. I don't anymore. But even a few years ago, just laugh it off because they think they're being, I think in their hearts, they think they're being funny or complimentary. But it's, it's racist. You know, racism isn't always about being um, uh, disrespectful or, be, or being overtly disrespectful or being violent. It's, it's about power, isn't it? And if someone says to you, you, like, you look like someone purely because of the colour of your skin, that in a way is exerting a power over you. So I think, you know, in terms of like reading, you know, Christie's story and, and having that thing of you know, you're not really fitting into either world, and you're seen as one thing on the outside, but inside you feel something different. And how you then show that to the world is, 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 is problematic, is a struggle sometimes. So it's so related to, to those kind of stories. And you know, it wasn't you know, just, just her story. There were other people that were talking about you know, where you have to sort of show one set of behavior, you know, maybe because if you don't, you're then judged based on the color of your skin or where you're from particularly if you're an immigrant, particularly if you're a person of colour. So for me, that's what I related to was, you know, the, the struggle between what you present and what you are um, and who you are and, and how you show that to the world. Uh, Christy, what stood out for you? Um, I, well, for me, it was definitely sort of my own identity and how other people would define me as well. And I think within that are the themes of sort of inclusion and exclusion. Um, sort of they're just inherently tied to that and something I've been thinking a lot about um, is just how you know we talk about sort of like this modern Britain a lot and but I, I find we always talk about it in this like you know maybe one day we'll get their way but we're here it's it's happened you know and you know so I'm mixed race and I'm, I'm second generation mixed race you know my mum was mixed race my father was white and um um, actually, he was from a traveler background, um, and you know, I'm sure we all know that there are huge issues for travelers in terms of um, intolerance and prejudice, and and yeah, you know, we have this really defined idea of what mixed race means. I think, and I, people, me, and people like me, that we don't always fit into that. You know, I don't have, like I said, my mom was mixed race, and my my father was white, and it can be really difficult because you you'll find that people often tell you what you are 
which is a really, really strange space to be in. And um, yeah, it was my own experience was very complicated and, um, you know, dealing with all the racism and, and yes, I have light skin and I, but I have never, ever um, seen myself as white from when I was very, very small. That's not um, how I saw myself. I saw myself as mixed race. And also that's how I was sort of spoken to by my family, you know. Um, there, um, my grandfather being from Pakistan, you know, it was an incredibly huge thing, you know, obviously he was their father, my grandfather, but all the experiences they had because of the colour of their skin, especially, and was was very, very difficult. And something else I've been thinking about is, you know, as we move forward, and there are going to be, there are many people like me, and there are going to be many, many more people like me, you know, second generation mixed race. And it feels very strange for a society to just assume that these people are white, there's a strange, like, I don't know what the term is, what I'm trying to say, but, you know, I think in any mixed race identity, yes, of course, genetics, but, you know, experience and culture really, really matter. And to sort of deny that, I don't know, it, it feels very, again, I can't fight the words. There's there's just something that feels very wrong about that to me. Um, mm-hmm. And it has definitely caused, and I everything that Paul said, you know, I really relate to as well. And it had it caused me a lot of sort of like um identity conflict I think growing up I feel very good I'm in a really good place now sort of in my late 20s I managed to sort of like really take the time and you have to to work through it and and you know Paul saying you you don't want to laugh these things off but you find yourself in these positions all the time where you're laughing it off or you have to spend a long time explaining so that you you really want the person to understand you know but that's Mm -hmm always the case you know no no Amara what particularly resonated for you in the book yeah I think I think all of those kind of threads felt um significant for me at some point throughout or significant not for me but significant um maybe for both me and Raj and throughout you know our conversations but I think the idea of yeah like you know how we define our own identities probably stands out the most for me um I, I remember asking I remember asking Raj you know about his journey climbing up the, the the nursing ladder here and and in the NHS in general and if he ever felt limited or hard done by the fact that you know he in some ways he's probably had to work twice as hard um to succeed or move up the ranks in comparison to those who aren't from a minority um ethnic background um and I remember raising that point with Raj and being surprised by his um not not I mean, maybe surprised by his outlook and not that I expected him to validate every point I was raising, but I just, I just, you know, I just have, I guess I have growing up with my mum, you know, and her experiences in the NHS. I just, I, I, pro- I have quite strong views about how things have been for her and the difficulties and hurdles she's had to climb over. So I remember raising that point with Raj and trying to, and, and, and I guess assuming that he was going to, you know, agree or, you know, uh, yeah reinforce everything that I had said but um he yeah he ended up actually saying something it was he said that yes being a foreigner may take you it might take you twice as hard to um you know climb up the ladder in comparison to your colleagues um but he said actually the bottom line is just how ambitious you are and if you know if you're in an interview situation whether you're you know from not from the UK or or you are your first language is not English or you or or it is isn't uh, is it whether your first language is not English or it is um, <laughs> there we go um, 
yeah if you kind of work hard and do well in the interview you'll get the job and you'll be able to move up so he said it was down to ambition I remember what I took away from that I guess was um he, he said race basically wasn't racial prejudice didn't really have that much of an impact on things in his point of view um and I think I guess what I took away from that was you know there's you know no matter what your situation is there's always um scope to try and um find yourself out of you know tough situations and you know if the odds are against you yes you might have to work double hard but to prove yourself but you know in the end you do have the power to kind of define how others receive you and see you and and define how yeah I guess I guess how you move through through life so I guess that to me it's the the, the running theme throughout our conversations was kind of spoke a lot to the idea of defining your own identity identity no matter what your background is um so yeah yeah, that's really interesting and takes me on that bit about the hope and the and having the power to define yourself. Because um, I think many of the stories in the book that kind of tinged with sadness and scepticism, I think more so than in Invisible Britain um, in 2019. Um, so I wanted to ask you all, um, do you feel like there are still spaces of hope to be found and where are they? And Amara, I think Raj is probably bringing that through a bit in his story. So I wondered if, did you find any other moments of hope in the book that you thought you could talk about? Yeah, I, I guess, like, you know, even, I, I guess I went into um, my conversations with Raj thinking, you know, we have a lot in common because culturally, even though we come from different countries, um, culturally, there's a lot that we can probably relate to. And yeah, even though, you know, he's a first generation immigrant, I'd, I'm a second generation immigrant. So, but I, you know, I felt like we had a lot in common. Um, and then, you know, I had that conversation with him and I had the opportunity to have that conversation with him because he, you know, he's a neighbor, he's a friend, you know, he's a family friend, he's my mom's colleague. Um, and he's someone who I see as being part of my community. Um, and yeah, I guess, I guess I walked away with, um, I guess, I guess I saw, I, I saw hope in that despite us having those similarities, he still had very different um, outlooks on life, has very different outlooks on life to me. And I, I'm just grateful that we got to even kind of tackle, I guess, political or taboo mm. topics like Brexit, like race, like um, socioeconomics, like um, immigration. And I was able to walk away from that conversation with, I guess, a new perspective and I guess nuggets of, you know, um, information or, or insight or thought that challenge my own my own view so I guess um, the hope is that you can have a chat with your neighbor and your friend and and they you know there's there's always people within your community who can, can you know who can challenge your beliefs and even though um, yeah sometimes you know you meet people who uh, it feels like you know all yeah like all the odds are against them they they still have optimism and they still have a different perspective and they've found their way through life and they're succeeding in life um and yeah i guess i guess the hope is in that yeah. hope is in conversation having conversations with your community people in your community yeah and i guess being open to doing that and being open to learn as well yeah. oh christy did you have anything on hope <laughs> i Please. feel like what i'm about to say is gonna sound really cynical but it's genuinely genuinely not i'm gonna i'm gonna try my best to express this so I think the way that hope is sometimes presented to us and it can be presented sort of through a political lens too. And I, I'm, I'm a bit wary of it sometimes because 
I think that hope even at the best of times is sort of quite an intangible thing and I think that you know in terms of making real change I think what we need is like you know something solid pragmatism all of these things and something very tangible and also I think that hope can be used as a sort of stall tactic for change where you know we leave people you know feeling hopeful waiting and I do you know what I think there's been enough waiting and um yeah I think that's sort of how I feel about it but I mean I think what Amara was just saying I totally agree with I think it's something that I really took away from reading the stories in the book is this idea of um sort of listening and understanding that yes there's collective experiences which are very important but individual experiences really really matter too and listening to them I think is where there is a lot of learning um to be done and a lot of knowledge to be found and also where there might be opportunities for real change yeah that's really interesting i almost felt a bit naive asking that question about hope because it is such a wishy-washy vague thing but yeah yes. as a starting point to doing a few more practical things that i'll i'll ask about that in the next question um paul space spaces of hope in amongst the skepticism uh, yeah i mean i, I think um amara and christy both agree with what they've said um i don't have too much to add you know i think you know you have to find your own hope or have other people that can um share some of theirs with you i think um i was thinking today about um uh, michael k williams um who died and i was thinking about you know the kind of actor he was and you know he was somebody that um had a very you know troubled upbringing in terms of um where he came from and you know the environment he grew up in and because he's, you know, allegedly died of a drug overdose, there'll be lots of stories about how, you know, that his talent has been squandered and that these demons and all these kind of cliches that come out. And, you know, when we were talking about hope and how it can be cliched, I just started thinking about that. And sometimes the things that, you know, um, in, in his case, I guess, maybe the things that were driving him as an artist, as an actor, were the things maybe that killed him. They come from similar places, I think, sometimes where you have a, level of self-destruction in you that you know fuels your creativity but can become the thing that kills you so I think when it comes to something like hope similarly you you know there are things that can you know if you if you cling on to them so much and, and there's nothing tangible to actually bring you to them or bring them to you ultimately that can be self-defeating I think you know you can't necessarily rely on something that isn't tangible and, and as Christy was saying you know it is very intangible hope it is what is it? We need things that are actually stronger and more um, untouchable than, than just abstract concepts of like, there will be a better tomorrow. You know, I mean, there's not, there isn't always a better tomorrow. There isn't always hope. And you try to see it and you try to kind of, you know, I named, I named part of the first book after it and sometimes looked back on that and thought maybe it should, should have just been resilience. I think resilience is probably better than hope, you know, knowing that even if, you um are struggling that you, you get through it no matter what whereas hope is kind of like, oh well you know what's going to bring me out is, i don't know i'll just hang on that isn't really is that resilience or is that naivety or is that just desperation maybe it's all of those things it's like hope makes us feel a bit better about things yeah and but it doesn't mean, actually change things does it yeah um, yeah so I mean, I mean, when I read the book, this is my final question, but when I read the book, I did feel like I couldn't just sit there and just passively absorb the stories and I needed to do things like properly take them on board and um, kind of consider what my role 
is in um, other people's stories as well. Um, so yeah, as a last question, how do you all think that, how do you all hope that people react, will react to the book and what do you think they'll take away from it? Well, first I hope they read it. <laughs> when you make something, the first thing you hope is that it reaches an audience. Um, after that, really, I don't know, um, it's, it's up to them. I think um, I would like them to just have a reaction to it, whether that was a reaction that, you know, they uh, obviously you want people to like something you've made, but I don't know, I'm wary of prescribing, um, you know, opinions to things you've made, because if, if you live by the reactions to your work, it's like reviews, you know, when, when you get reviews, um, film, you know, someone reviews a film that you know, I've worked on and you read, if you read 10 positive reviews and then you read one negative review, the negative review always sticks in your head. So I don't tend to read reviews now. I mean, I, I sort of like skim them and if it's like got like four stars, I get a little buzz. If it's got two stars, I'm like, right, I'm going to read this. And so I try to sort of steer clear of it because it's not good for you really because it's just somebody's opinion. And so I do respect audiences more than critics because audiences pay critics just you know get paid to review things but ultimately you know what someone you know thinks of it, it, it entirely up to them i hope that they at least engage with it and read it and if they turn around and, and they and they get something great if they don't as long as they've read it that's just the main thing really for me amara what do you hope people might take away from it i guess i just hope that like you know paul said um people just yeah read it and like and and kind of approach it with an open mind and a willingness to listen um to stories like you know from people whose you know path is different to their own um I think there's like you know we it's, it's really easy to surround yourself with you know people who think the same as you and look the same as you and grew up in the same the same as you um, it requires less brain power it's easier and it feels safer but um, I think there's so much like merit in just you know widening your sphere of consciousness and challenging your own worldviews and hopefully yeah the book will be um, a vehicle for that and a means of kind of encouraging people to not even necessarily seek common ground with other people but just to yeah uh, respect difference and and accept difference and acknowledge difference. Um, so yeah, I think hopefully people will walk away with fresh perspective. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Christy, last word to you. Um, I think because I'm sharing my story in the book, I am not gonna lie, I have a little bit of sort of like reservations, especially because <laughs> in Scotland, I think I mentioned this in, in the, my little interview thing, you know, we really do like to see ourselves as having solved a lot of problems to do with racism. And I definitely um, say that I don't think that that is the case. And I absolutely do not think that is the case. I think there's a bit of Scottish exceptionalism going on there. I'm not a big fan. Um, so I was a bit nervous about sort of putting that out there, even though I truly believe it. Um, and I think that, you know, like anything, you know, some people are going to see this as like a celebration. Some people will see it as like a call to arms and other people will see it as, you know, like in a really negative, like a sign of the times sort of thing. And I think that I'm, and I'm sure Paul and Amara will totally understand this too, you know, you get so emotionally exhausted um, if you tie lots of yourself to these reactions. And so I'm just very much like, I hope people read it. I hope that they look at the people's faces and read their stories. And I, like Amara said, I hope that they just come away 
having stepped outside of their bubble for a second and with a bit more understanding about something and maybe having learned something and yeah it's um it's a bit of a difficult one because obviously you want people to have positive reactions obviously but I think yeah I'm just at a point in my life where I'm very much just accepting whatever whatever it is and you know like exactly like the book so many different opinions in there which I really appreciated and it will be exactly the same in the reactions to the book I'm very sure thank you everyone that was really great to speak to you all and kind of bring all of you together here um so thanks for that um this separated aisle is edited by Paul Sung and published by Policy Press and you can find more information about the book at policy.bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.